0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, some legal analysis of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeals split decision in support of the constitutionality of the federal carbon tax. Also, why is the federal government watering down the wording in its terrorism threat report? Plus, a constitutional challenge is being launched over Canada's new impaired driving law, specifically the mandatory breathalyzer provision. So there's going to be a lot of parsing of this decision, a lot of reaction to it, the initial reaction from Alberta's premier. Quote, we are reviewing the decision, but our initial reaction is that this narrow split decision is far from the broad victory the federal government sought. And we are glad all five justices rejected the federal government's claim for sweeping power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in the province. The decision's application to Alberta remains to be seen because, frankly, the previous NDP government was missing in action, failing to participate in the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. As a result, Alberta did not contribute to the record before the court. We disagree with the narrow ruling by the majority that the federal government has the power to ensure a provincial minimum price on carbon and will be joining Saskatchewan in their appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Look, it is a narrow decision. I mean, 3-2 decision is is not an overwhelming consensus here. It is not a slam dunk for the federal government's position, but it is a win. It is a win on that question of whether Ottawa has jurisdiction to impose a carbon tax. But there are issues that arise here that that don't arise elsewhere. Nobody challenged Ottawa's jurisdiction, for example, to impose the GST or the federal government's ability to collect income taxes. The federal government very clearly has taxation power. And if carbon tax, if it was as clear as those other taxes, this wouldn't have been a 3-2 decision. Because in this area, we are getting into an area where the provinces have some jurisdiction, specifically with regard to environmental regulation. And Saskatchewan's point here, and the other provinces as well that have supported this, is that we have some jurisdiction to regulate this. And we can choose to do it in a different way. Well, joining us uh, for some reaction uh, as to what this means and whether we're likely to see this go to the Supreme Court, very pleased to welcome to the program, Martin Olchinski is uh, Associate Professor at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law. Martin, thank you so much for joining us here.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Anything about this surprise you? Uh, You know, I mean, I think it's interesting. It is interesting to hear the Premier uh, characterize this as a narrow narrow win. Uh, You know, frankly, I think coming out of the hearing back in February, I think most of us thought that actually the federal government would probably lose. Um, so going into the hearing, I think generally the, the most observers, scholars, whatever you want to call us, um, thought that the federal government had a pretty good argument. Um, but when you got into the hearing and the panel, the judges seemed quite skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as it turns out, that, that, that skepticism has played out in this decision in the sense that they have decided that, you know, when they talk about the, the head of power under which they're upholding this legislation, in fact, they've said very clearly it's not a tax. You know, and in fact, there's a great paragraph where the court says, look, under this legislation, if every province enacts its own carbon, like a sufficient GHG regime, the federal government would not raise any revenue because the act wouldn't apply anywhere. So they said very clearly it's not a tax. So what they've upheld it on is what's called this residual power. So Section 91 of the Constitution sets out the heads of power for the federal government. Those are the subject matters that, that the federal government can legislate on. And then Section 92 does it for provinces. And in Section 91, we see the reference to taxation. We see reference to some other things that are relevant to this discussion. The criminal law power was referred to. But then at the introduction to Section 91, it says the government may pass laws for peace, order, and good governance of Canada. And it's that residual power that uh, the federal government invoked in this case and that ultimately uh, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeals said, yes, we will uphold this legislation. The, the three-judge the three majority said yes. And what they said was that, minimum national stringency with respect to ghg pricing is a matter of national concern and that therefore the, the federal government may pass a law and that that's what this law this greenhouse gas pricing legislation is all about and and that that is a matter of national concern but at the same time that leaves the provinces with lots of space and scope to enact their own legislation
1: would the federal government have been better off just simply saying yes, this is a tax, <laughs> and well, that's
2: that? Well, they couldn't, right? Because again, the point is made. So, the, you know, and, and, and this is important, and, and again, it actually ties into some of what the premier said in his little clip there that you played before um, before I came on. Um, you know, if the government had gone out, if the government had just applied a straightforward tax. This legislation wouldn't have to be 250 pages long. Right. If it was just a straightforward tax, they wouldn't be rebating. You know, uh, I think up to 80 percent of families in Canada are going to receive more money in a rebate than they than they pay in the tax. And so, none of you couldn't do all of that. You couldn't also stand down the tax in a province for the reasons that I just explained. The court said, "Look, if every province passes their own here, then this this legislation makes no revenue. Makes no revenue. So therefore, how do you call it a tax?" So it was really where the government at the time, and remember that Canada was like fundamentally different in its political orientation a few years ago right I mean we had a we had a we did have an NDP or a liberal government in BC supporting a carbon tax we had the NDP supporting uh, doing its own pricing at least supporting pricing whether federal or provincial but supporting carbon pricing in Ontario it was the same thing um, and so you know they came up with this plan but they were very insistent that the sort of political quid pro quo was fine you can have a national standard but you gotta give us room and so for the federal government to enact that kind of legislation, it had to reach into this residual pog branch, which was a big yeah. gamble you know and again, and I think a lot of people thought after that hearing that it wasn 't going to fly um, and of course i 've said this in other contexts too, and I say it. Um, this is just a case of first impressions. Uh, the, you know, of course, Premier Kenney is absolutely right. They're going to appeal this decision. We're still waiting. Uh, Ontario's had a hearing now, and so we have to wait for that decision to come out. Uh, Manitoba's indicated it's going to challenge the, the tax or the carbon pricing legislation. Same with New Brunswick. So all of this is going to have to get sorted out at the various provincial courts of appeal, and then it's all going to go to the Supreme Court.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that seems quite certain at this point, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: it's interesting because if, if this is meant to be environmental regulation, it does really change the dynamic of the conversation because Ottawa is then saying to the provinces, you need to have regulations around greenhouse gases and provinces are saying, okay, we will. And Ottawa is coming back and saying, no, you're doing it the wrong way. That That's where it becomes more
2: problematic for Ottawa, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, so there's, I mean, they were, you know, the legislation's pretty quiet um, on on what you need to do in a province. And I think, um, you know, again, I think for a long time, at least under the previous provincial government here, right, uh, the government, the federal government was prepared to say, okay, that's fine, you're, you're good. Um, BC, same, you're good. Uh, Ontario was going to do something, I think a cap and trade mechanism, but that was going to be fine. So, you know, and, and I'm not an economist, so there's uh, or an energy law, or sorry, energy policy expert, and so you'd want to speak with Andrew Leach or somebody else yeah. like that to, to understand the minutia of how it works. But, um, but I, you know, so I guess coming back to your point, I mean, the extent to which this constrains the federal, the provincial governments, I don't, I can't say for sure. What I can, say, I, I think it, I think it's probably not as constraining as some people claim it to be. Um, uh, certainly, there is there is some kind of minimum um, standard with respect to pricing, and and what's interesting actually on this point is actually the court mentions um, pricing and and notes that unchallenged in the record, and so on this point too, it's interesting. I mean, obviously Saskatchewan challenged this this decision or challenged the law. Um, Other parties, the Conservative Party of Alberta actually challenged it as an intervener. They were there in the hearing. Um, No one challenged the idea that that this consensus, that carbon pricing is a necessary, if not sufficient measure to achieve global reductions in GHG emissions. And then the court went out of its way, I think, to sort of put that out there, to point out that nobody challenged this consensus. And so, I mean, you know, on that point, I guess I think, um, you know, the court is really just reflecting back to us Um, The discussion that we're having at the political level,
1: because, yeah, I mean, as you point out, I think a lot of economists would explain why they believe a price on carbon is more effective and efficient than other approaches. But that's not what the court's being asked to decide. Right. So if a province says we're going to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but we're going to do so a different way. So does Ottawa have the jurisdiction then to basically overrule that and say, no, that's the wrong way, so we have to impose our policy to to supplant yours?
2: Well, yeah. So, I mean, on that, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, again, so what the court here recognized as a matter of national concern is uh, the establishment of a minimum baseline, like, uh, for carbon pricing. Um, And so what I would say to that, you know, is that, I think the answer is, is that it then becomes a matter for the like the, the court of public opinion in a sense. So what the court has said is, look, governments different governments will pass different laws and different policies, and this, this current liberal government uh, purports to favor climate, uh, sorry, carbon pricing. another government might not. All we're saying, what the Court of Appeal here is saying is that To the extent that they've led with this law, this particular law, if you're asking us whether they are constitutionally capable of doing so, we're going to say yes. They've met the test. This this matter has sufficient singleness and and distinctiveness that we're prepared to say that it at least is constitutional. Now, whether that's a good idea, whether Canadians think that that's a good idea, of course, is... Um, a totally different question and one that we'll all have an opportunity essentially to pass judgment on this coming fall.
1: Right. And people shouldn't get confused about that. In no way is the court saying that Canada must have a price on carbon. There's nothing here that, that binds a future government from from scrapping this policy.
2: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, and I mean, I will say, I, I do think that um, cases like this do have uh, some normative effect. Um, you know, and one of the things that's actually interesting, and it's interesting in the context, of course, of, of, uh, premier kenny's uh, appearance last yesterday in in ontario in ottawa um and and talking about bill c69 is that there are several passages actually here where the court reiterates the point that 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 the environment itself has not been assigned to either level of government that it that it that it falls you know that essentially it can be reached by either level through their various heads of power but not without considerable uncertainty and overlap Right? And that is essentially it's a shared jurisdiction. And I think that that's a really important point, certainly. So again, and that's the effect of this finding, isn't that? The effect the of the court of appeals decision isn't that the federal government, for instance, gets to claim um, exclusive jurisdiction over greenhouse gases or climate change, but rather it, it has that minimal national standard aspect, and then the provinces are still free to do all of the good work that they've done in the past and that they want to continue doing. Um, and, and so I think that, that that really is, though, a bedrock constitutional principle. And frankly, I think a lot of us were scratching our heads a little bit um, yesterday because the idea that jurisdictional environments are shared that there's no such thing really as a as a purely provincial project or a you know that essentially has been settled for about 30 years and we see that the court reiterating that point here.
1: Well, does this give us more clarity around where provincial jurisdiction ends and where federal jurisdiction begins?
2: Well, I mean, certainly, well, with respect to carbon pricing, anyways. I mean, and again, we have to remember, we're in the early days, and I, so I don't want to over overplay the significance of this decision. I mean, I think certainly each side would have liked to come out of this on top. Um, but but I think, you know, it's absolutely the case that this is going to go, you know, it's very possible that this will go, uh, that a different provincial appellate court will find the opposite. And, and again, all of this has to be sort of resolved by the Supreme Court. Um, you know, so on the basis of the decision, you couldn't of course you can't make broad generalizations now suddenly about the full like the the full extent of of federal jurisdiction. I mean one of the things actually that that happened, for instance, in this case is that um, the interveners in support of the pricing legislation did raise some of these other heads of power, for instance, they said, well, if it's not." it's not national concern, maybe it's criminal law, or maybe it's trade and commerce, or maybe it's uh, the emergency branch. And, And the court actually goes through each of those and sort of says, no, 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 this is, you know, it could, for instance, it does say that the parliament could pass a law using its criminal law power to to somehow address climate change, but that this law is not that law, you know, and that, so this law could not be upheld, it doesn't meet the necessary sort of elements of that kind of law. So we do have some clarity, certainly in terms of the jurisdictionality and the constitutionality of this specific piece of legislation, um, and we know that there are other jurisdictional hooks that the federal government has, Um but but you know but i think in terms of going forward in clarity in in this current environment i guess i would say that some of that bedrock stuff the both the and in this case both the majority and the dissenting uh, judgments talk about and remind us about these sort of basic constitutional principles going back to 1992 actually the friends of the old man river case which involves the old man river dam here in alberta that this is a matter of shared jurisdiction and that that is always that's our starting point when we're talking about um, environmental regulation.
1: Well, very interesting, Martin. Appreciate the insight on this. Thanks so much for joining us here today.
2: You're very welcome. All right.
1: That is uh, Martin Olczynski, associate professor of law at the University of Calgary. So his initial impressions of this on a 3-2 decision. I mean, it's pretty much a guarantee that this is going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. And yeah, it, it does raise some interesting issues. If this were purely about the federal government's ability to impose a tax, this would have been a very brief 5 nothing decision. But because Ottawa is maintaining in its own arguments that it's not really a tax, or it's not uniquely a tax, then clearly we're getting into other areas here. So a 3-2 decision. The question of the, the nature of the terror threat facing Canada, the seriousness of the terror threat. Anyone could come up with the, the statement that, sure, there are violent groups out there, Maybe some more violent than others. Violent ideologies in that some of those pose a threat to Canada. But that's not much of a report, is it? If you're going to identify what Canada's threats are, you need to be a little more specific. What ideologies are we talking about? What is it that these groups believe? Why is it then that that this is a risk to Canada? Now, for example, there is a document prepared for Public Safety Canada. Uh, on an annual basis, the public report on the terrorism threat to Canada. Now, as of just recently, it read, quote, the principal terrorist threat to Canada and Canadian interests continues to be that posed by individuals or groups who are inspired by violent Sunni Islamist ideology and terrorist groups such as Daesh or Al-Qaeda. At the same time, Canada also continues to face threats from individuals inspired to commit violence based on other forms of of extremism, including from right-wing, shia islamists and sikh Khalistani extremists the risk of violence emanating from individuals inspired by these forms of extremism currently poses a lower threat to canada than that of daesh or al-qaeda inspired individuals or groups so okay that's all very straightforward and very helpful except the report doesn't say that anymore it's been revised The opening sentence now says the principal terrorist threat to Canada and Canadian interests continues to be that posed by individuals or groups who are inspired by violent ideologies and terrorist groups. Why are we eliminating these words? Now, already the federal government removed the word Sikh extremism from this report. Now they've gone and removed Sunni and Shia Muslim and Islamist from this report. But if those words are important in understanding the ideology and motivation of terror groups... Why would we remove that from the report? What's also strange is that you can go to Public Safety Canada's website, and there's a specific page listing all the banned terrorist organizations in Canada. And all of these words that have been expunged from this report are all there. Because, yes, you need to explain the beliefs and the ideology of these groups. Now, the argument from the Public Safety Department or from the minister himself is that we don't want language that would encompass or malign entire religions. Surely, though, we can speak to the ideology of these groups, while at the same time pointing out, emphasizing the very obvious point, that not all Muslims, not all Sikhs, not all white people support these ideologies. So why isn't it that simple? Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Phil Gersky is president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Over 30 years as a strategic analyst uh, analyst in the Canadian intelligence community, including 15 years at CSIS. Phil, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. So what, what do you make of this? I mean, I understand that, that the government doesn't want to be going out of its way to offend people or suggest that you know Muslims support terrorism or that Sikhs support extremism, but uh, is is this going too far?
0: I think it is. Um, I, I saw the statement by Public Safety Canada, and by the way, I did spend 18 months uh, within Public Safety Canada before I retired from the Federal Civil Service, and the rationale why why they did this, or the, the claim they're doing this, is they don't want to give oxygen to people who think that, as you said, all Muslims are terrorists, or all Sikhs are terrorists. And there's no question about it. We live in pretty nasty times, right? Mm -hmm. Where all kinds of stuff is said online, and and people extrapolate or just make comments that are patently untrue. The problem with the terminology is that it takes away from an accurate description of the threat. So let's let's start with Sikh extremism. So, So the original term was Sikh extremism, and then they changed it to those... Who, to, who will use violence to secure an independent Khalistan, which is the part of India that is largely Sikh right. um, dominated and they want to be separated from India. Um, that's fine, but as I said in my blog post, it's not a coincidence that every single person who happens to think violence is okay to create a an cal- independent calistan happens to be Sikh. There aren't hmm. a, lot of, are, are a lot of Catholics or Presbyterians in that group. So, to call, to, so calling it Sikh extremism is accurate because A, they're all Sikhs, and B, they're all extremists. And in that phrase does nothing to suggest that the vast, vast, vast majority of, of Sikhs, whether here in, in India or here in Canada, we have a large community in Canada, have anything to do with this. They don't condone it. They don't support it. So I, I don't think the government's argument is very strong that by labeling this, we in fact, I think the, the minister said, impugning a community. We're not. We're calling it for what it is, a small number of people who happen to be this particular faith and who, by the way, use that faith to justify the violence to get their way.
1: Well, I mean that's the thing. Look, I mean the idea of Khalistan is to create a Sikh homeland. I mean, even the word Khalistan means land of the pure. So look, not all Sikhs obviously, as you say, support these groups. In fact, not all Sikhs even support the idea of, of Khalistan. But to suggest that religion is irrelevant when in fact it's it's fundamental to the whole idea of Khalistan, that that's what makes it seem so absurd.
0: Well, and you, you raised a really good... I'm glad you said fundamental, Rob, because you really hit the nail on the head here. And this is something that I'm exploring, and uh, if you'll pardon the shameless self-promotion, I have another book coming out this fall, and it's on religious extremism. Not, you know, I focus on Islamist extremism at Thesis, that's what I've written on so far, but this book covers all forms of religious extremism. Uh, Buddhist, I believe it or not, there is Buddhist extremism, Hindu, Jewish, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you're absolutely right, is that these people use their notion of the faith to to call for, to justify, and demand the violence that they're going to be using. Now, no one says that, that 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 form of the faith is normative, mainstream, moderate, whatever term you want to use, but to deny it's part of it is to, to deny facts, and like you said, the, the, the demand for a Sikh homeland, it's a homeland for Sikh people. It's not a, it's not a homeland for the Seventh-day Adventists, right? right exactly. It's a homeland for Sikhs. So, so that is an accurate way to describe it. And it's extremist. It's not mainstream. And as we've both agreed, the vast majority of Sikhs do not buy into this program because those that do are extremists.
1: Uh, and, and I mean, the, the same can be said of this. These latest revisions, which uh, refer to Islamist extremism, or even differentiate between Sunni and, and Shia extremism, which again seems relevant. There's there's a difference between, for example, Hamas and and Hezbollah, and I think it's important to understand what those differences are. So are we are we losing that that important understanding on on this side as well?
0: We are, and I've always argued that you know when I was to work for thesis, and even now on my so-called retirement, I worry an awful lot more about Sunni Islamist extremism than I do about Shia Islamist extremism. I'm not denying that Hezbollah is out there, right. but Hezbollah is really, it's, it's a threat to Israel within that sort of area. Yes, they have people abroad, there's a lot of people in Canada, et cetera. Et cetera but, you know, to, to think of a Hezbollah attack in Canada, I mean, I, I can't even imagine the scenario, under I wish that would happen. I can imagine lots of scenarios uh, under which we have Sunni Islamist terrorist plots. In fact, we've had them, you, had, you know, we've had them in Edmonton, we've had them in, 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 in Ottawa, we've had them in Toronto, et cetera. Et cetera. And, and we do lose something by this. And If you remember, Rob, in the days after 9-11, a lot of people went to the nth degree to say, this has nothing to do with Islam. And I said, um, time out here, it has a lot to do with Islam. Islamist extremist, certainly not normative Islam, but the fact that groups like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, no, they're not representative of Muslims but they pepper every single propaganda statement with, with verses from the Quran or the Hadith, which are the same as the Prophet Muhammad, or Islamic imagery, or, or, or. And to say that this is, this is somehow divorced completely from Islam is simply, a, it's false. It's a false statement. And to me, and this is the important part, I think it's intellectually dishonest to try to distance um, these types of terrorism completely from some form of religion.
1: It's important to understand the nature of any threat, isn't it? I mean, we we could simply just have a blanket statement that says there are violent people, there are violent groups that exist, some of them are a threat to Canada, and I guess that that can be our report. But don't we need to to identify who these groups are, what it is they want, what it is they believe, what it is they're trying to do, so that we can better understand the threat? Isn't that the whole idea here?
0: Absolutely. So if you go to the criminal code, Rob, the criminal code states quite categorically That an act. This is under section 83 of the criminal code. An act of terrorism is a serious act of violence that is planned or perpetrated in the furtherance of ideological, political, or religious ends. Those three words are the key. That this is why an act of terrorism is different than an act of vandalism, or it's different than uh, an assault, or different than credit card fraud. Because you're doing it for a cause, whereas most criminals couldn't spell cause, let alone you know abide by one. Right. So it says right there in the criminal code, religious. Underpinnings. Now we have a government that seems to want to distance itself away from that. They have to change the criminal code for one thing. But you're absolutely right. If you don't, if you don't describe it for what it is, and you lop, you know, white supremacism, neo-Nazism, Hindu extremism, Sikh extremism, Islamist extremism, all into one, one to one big pot. Yeah, they're all terrorism. But if you want to analyze it correctly, and I would argue you want to be able to prevent it from happening more accurately. You got to call it for what it is. And I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not inventing this. This is the terminology these guys use. And to, like I can say to, to not do so is is actually ignoring a very important part of What it is, and more importantly, what are we going to do about
1: it? Well, yeah, and I mean, white nationalism, white separatism, there's an obvious example. Nobody would would ever suggest that we don't use the word white to describe white nationalists and white supremacists and the threat that they pose. I mean, I'm a white person. I, I don't support white nationalism or white supremacism. I don't think acknowledging it as such implies that all white people do. But I think we need to understand what it is these groups are all about, right?
0: You know, not, that's a great analogy. I really like you that you said that because you're absolutely right. I'm, a white, I'm an old white guy, too. <laughs> and the fact that someone uses the term white supremacism or white nationalism or whatever, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't have my reputation impugned. I don't feel bad. I don't feel put upon. I don't feel like I'm being locked in with everyone else. You and I and, and, and you know, and my, my Uncle Joe could probably identify a white supremacist without looking in the mirror and saying, gee, I wonder if I'm that way, too. So you're absolutely right. The parallel is perfect. There happened to be, a, thankfully, in Canada at least, I I think I'm pretty sure on this, a very small number of Canadians who embrace the use of violence in the furtherance of what they see as white supremacy or white nationalism. It's just like there are a very few number of Canadian Muslims and a very few number of, of Canadian Sikhs who embrace the use of violence to further their causes. So just like, the, you know, not all whites are this way, not all Muslims or Sikhs are that way. So I don't see why there's a problem with using the terminology.
1: We're getting confusing messages, I think, from the government, because on the one hand, they want to soften or water down the language in this report, and, and there seem to be more political considerations. But one can go to, the, we have a, a published list of banned terrorist organizations that is very specific and very detailed about all of these different groups and, and the ideology, and in some cases, then even the religion that they they profess to, to represent. So why is it on the one hand, we have clarity in one report, but we have obfuscation in, in another?
0: Well, I think it's, I think what you're referring to is is the list of the listed terrorist entities, which yeah. is on the Public Safety Canada website. That, and I, I know all about that because it came into existence while I was at thesis. And this was very much a legal tool. And the reason why they brought this in after 9 11, Rob, was so that the police could more easily lay charges if they found evidence that you belonged to one of these groups. In other words, belonging to Al Qaeda or. Uh, the International Student uh, Sikhs Youth Federation or whatever is an offence under the criminal code because it's a illicit entity and you're part of it. Therefore, they can charge you with it. And I remember, because I was part of the first team that did that, that the initial drafting of these entities, if you will, to describe them, we had to provide exact language so that we could say this is what the group is, here's what they stand for, um, here's what it means to be part of it so that you can actually charge someone under the criminal code. So you're right, the language in there is very, very precise. And yet we have this public report and, and the first version wasn't too bad when it came out last fall. Now it's been edited twice, as we've been talking about. Sikh extremism is out. Sunni and Xi extremism is out. So it seems like, I, I don't want to be dismissive here, but I'm really getting worried that at some point the word terrorism is going to get edited out because some terrorists are going to get offended. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only half joking here. But, you know, what's the next edit? I, I saw a hilarious uh, a meme on the Internet about, you know, we can't talk about the IRA anymore because that, that would offend the Irish. So it was island next to England... <laughs> Anti-monarchical
1: something. <laughs> well, I mean we yeah, it feels like we're getting into too absurd territory here. I I mean, look, I, I would much rather see a report that has a whole bunch of caveats reminding everybody that you know these groups don't speak for all Muslims or Sikhs or Irish or white people. I would much rather have that if we want to put in all these caveats to, to reassure people than than to have this this language, you know, watered down or, or omitted altogether.
0: I'm with you. I I think I I, I support that. And you know what? Inevitably, um, some idiot is going to extrapolate from the report and say, all Muslims, all Sikhs, whatever, are terrorists. At that point, you say, no, you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. And you come out with some data you can up with statistics you say look at this is an improper interpretation of it now you and i both know rob that with the stuff that goes on online um now that you nor I are going to resolve this thing tomorrow yeah. there are idiots everywhere and that's the unfortunate reality and they seem to multiply on the internet but i think you're right we can use proper terminology caveat it up to yin yang and then when people start going down the wrong pathway, we say okay here's why you're wrong and, and rather than getting into some emotional rage-filled argument just sit down and say, okay, why do you think that way? What are the statistics you can use to prove that your, your point of view is, is right? Now, you know, again, that's not going to convince some people, but at least you can have a civil dialogue and not take away from the accuracy of, of, of calling the threat for what it is.
1: Much more at BorealisThreatAndRisk.com. Phil, really appreciate the insights. Thanks so much for joining us here.
0: Anytime, Rob. Thanks for calling.
1: There you go. Phil uh, Gursky is president and CEO of Borealis uh, Threat and Risk Consulting. So some important points that he makes. Here's an example. Uh, At the uh, Public Safety Canada website, where they have the list of banned terrorist organizations. One of them is Boko Haram. And we've heard of Boko Haram. They have a much longer name, but um, they're described as a Salafist jihadi group operating in northern Nigeria, whose ultimate objective is to overthrow the Nigerian government and implement Sharia law. So if we take this approach of not mentioning anything to do with religion. On the one hand, it might be difficult to mention Boko Haram's name since it is derived from religion. So we can't call them Salafist. We can't call them Jihadist. We can't reference Sharia law. So they would be a group operating in northern Nigeria whose objective is to overthrow the government. That really doesn't explain what Boko Haram is or why they are a banned terrorist organization, does it? It needs to be mentioned. This is who they are. This is why they've called themselves that. This is what they are trying to do. We have to. Look, if we need to, if we feel the need to say that Boko Haram does not speak for all Muslims or all Nigerian Muslims or whatever we feel we need to say, then fine. Say it. That's a much better alternative than just erasing all of this. Because that's the reality of what we're dealing with. A well, constitutional challenge has been launched around Canada's roadside impaired driving regime. It's a 76-year-old Victoria woman who is, is uh, making this, this complaint, filing this challenge. And it's, it's an interesting case. Um, and and there, there are perhaps others like it out there. Uh, this woman was ordered to blow into a breathalyzer. She was pulled over after leaving a liquor store near her home. But despite showing no signs of impairment, she was ordered to provide a breath sample. And under changes to federal law, police officers no longer have that reasonable suspicion requirement. They can order any motorist to blow into a breathalyzer. But because of medical condition, she was unable to blow hard enough in order to get a reading on the machine. The police officer, though, concluded that she was doing it deliberately and charged her with refusing to provide a breath sample, something that is treated as serious uh, as a charge of impaired driving. So she is fighting back, joining us to talk more about this case and uh, some of the important issues it potentially raises. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, attorney representing uh, Ms. McLeod. Uh, Jennifer Terran is her name, BC-based attorney, focusing on administrative and constitutional law. Jennifer, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you very much for having me and for taking an interest in this case.
1: Well, I think Canadians should pay close attention to this. Tell us a bit more, if you can, about what, what happened to Ms. McLeod.
3: Well, I mean, you summarized it very, very well. Um, the thing, uh, the police officer, I think, he was staking out the liquor store. So he didn't sort of just drive by and see her leaving. He actually positioned himself in a parking lot. It's all in the police report. Um, to watch people come out of the liquor store so he could he, in his words, screen every person who exited. And it just so happened that Ms. McLeod was the first person to exit the liquor store that that morning. Um, She was out, as many people do, uh, in the morning doing some errands. And one of those errands was to, I believe, get a bottle of sherry from the liquor store. Uh, Yeah. yeah, So then he basically uh, just followed her out of the parking lot, uh, no observations about anything. she wasn't stumbling out or Staggering out, she walked out, got in her car. He followed her. No driving behavior alleged. He just pulled her over arbitrarily at the side of the road and then initiated the uh, breath testing. I understand
1: that that the officer was stomping numerous people coming out of that liquor store. Essentially, they had the store staked out and, and they were stomping a lot of the people who were coming out. Is that your understanding? Well,
3: that was his intention. But I this see. was, as I understand it from his report, the first person oh, okay. he did actually stop. He may have gone back. In fact, he probably did. But he did say his intention was to, uh, to test every person who came out.
1: Right, so by admission, then, they were not looking for any signs of impairment with anybody? No,
3: because under the new law, um, under the new criminal code provision, they don't require any sort of suspicion whatsoever. There doesn't need to be any evidence of alcohol um, consumption, let alone alcohol impairment, um, which is obviously the subject matter of our constitutional challenge, because it's my position and that of my uh, managing partner and co-counsel, Jerry Steele, that the the legislation is overly broad, it's arbitrary, it captures a number of people who were not intended to be captured by this.
1: Okay, well, explain what happened then as a result. So her her vehicle was impounded.
3: Right, okay. So in British Columbia, we have a legislative regime under the Motor Vehicle Act called the Immediate Roadside Prohibition Scheme. And so it's separate from a, a DUI under the criminal code. And essentially what it is, is that a police officer um, can breath test a person at roadside and if they either blow a fail on an approved screening device, an ASD, or they refuse to provide a sample, which was what is arguably what had happened here, it's a a refusal or fail to provide a sample upon demand, then what happens is the driver is served with a 90-day driving prohibition a 30-day impoundment of their vehicle. There's um, a driver's license reinstatement fee, a $500 fine the cost for towing and storage, of course, to the driver. And then they have to participate in something called the Responsible Driver Program, and that has a price tag of $930. It also remains on the person's driving record for five years. So okay. that is what happened in this
1: case. Right, so not a criminal charge of re- refusing to blow, but be, you know, the, the law in B.C. kind of creates that, that option for, for law enforcement, Then what some have called almost the decriminalization, where it it's is, basically yeah. dealt with uh, at the side of the road. Much. Yeah,
3: we, it would be, we call it administratively. It's an administrative regime. But make no mistake, it's an option for the police to proceed that way. They could, in any situation, decide to actually charge someone under the criminal code. It's a discretionary matter that mm-hmm. um, the, the police officer makes a decision right then and there.
1: Okay, so uh, the officer believed that she was, was faking, essentially.
3: Uh, in my opinion, having seen all of the evidence, I don't actually think that the police officer believed anything. I don't think the police officer actually believed she had alcohol in her body. I don't think he believed she was faking it. I think he was trying to justify after the fact the decisions that he made along the way. Because you do have to remember, they fill out some forms at Roadside at the time, what we call contemporaneously to the impaired driving investigation. But in reality, he takes his all of his notes back to his detachment or may complete them in the car. And he makes all those observations and allegations later. So the Mm -hmm. point being that the police officer has to provide um, a narrative text hard copy or what the average uh, layperson would think of as like a police report. And the purpose of that report is to lay out the circumstances of the alleged infraction or offense and then justify why they made the decision that they did.
1: Okay, so um, Ms. McCloud has uh, COPD, and she wears what's essentially a medical appliance. I think it's on the roof of her mouth, is that right?
3: That's my understanding. It's a prosthetic because she had uh, part of the roof of her mouth removed um, after uh, having mouth cancer.
1: Wow, and as, as part of the appeal of this, she, she went and got a letter from her doctor, but despite that, they, they refused to, to hear this.
3: That's right. As a part of the uh, IRP regime, a person can file for a review of the driving prohibition, and that's with an adjudicator who works for the superintendent of motor vehicles. And so they then assess all of the evidence put forth, first by the police officer and then by the driver or applicant. Now, Ms. McLeod was told when she went to file for her review that she didn't need a lawyer. I would call that bad advice. I do these types of reviews on a daily basis. And while it appears accessible to the average person, it really is not. And so as a result of that, she didn't make probably some of the arguments that could have been made. Um, And she provided a one-page letter herself and then a letter from her daughter to corroborate a certain issue that was at play um, and the doctor's note. And thankfully, she provided the doctor's note and also medical records to, you know, substantiate that she did have these conditions that were relevant to her inability to provide the sample. Um, But despite that, the adjudicator who made the decision in her case, I would argue took advantage of the fact that she was not represented by counsel. And so they didn't properly assess the totality of the evidence to make sure that, first of all, what the police officer was saying seemed credible um, and therefore reliable. Um, She just looked at the deficiencies in Ms. McLeod's evidence and then made a decision that ultimately Ms. McLeod wasn't following the instructions that were given to her by the police officer and therefore her inability to provide the sample as demanded was due to her conduct and not to any sort of medical issue. Yeah.
1: Well, look, so we've got we've got issues along the way here and and how badly and unfairly she was treated beginning starting from the very beginning, in fact, when she probably shouldn't have been pulled over in the first place. So where do the constitutional issues uh, arise here? What is this challenge going to focus on?
3: Okay, so I will start by pointing out that I believe there are problems with the IRP regime in this case, and that's something I deal with on a regular basis. But in this case, that's a secondary issue that we are not really dealing with. We will deal with that in terms of the judicial review of her decision, and we will pick that apart to get her the outcome that she deserves. But constitutionally speaking, what it comes down to is our contention that the mandatory alcohol screening provision in the criminal code, which was added in December last year, is unconstitutional, ultimately because it violates um, a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada in R.V. Shahil, which lays out the criteria for the constitutionality of the reasonable suspicion requirement, which still exists. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, what you're left with is Shahil says that you need something more than generalized suspicion for um reasonable suspicion to be valid it has to be something a little more specific but in the case we're at now not only are we looking at something that falls below reasonable suspicion it falls below generalized suspicion The, the practical reality is that police officers don't need any suspicion they just need to lawfully stop a person and unfortunately a lawful traffic stop per a decision called Dessour, also from the Supreme Court of Canada, is so broad as to be essentially meaningless in this context because a police officer he doesn't he or she doesn't necessarily need a good excuse to stop you they just need to say they had a good excuse to stop you oh checking for driver's license and insurance oh in this case checking for sobriety again this can be an after the fact issue they just have to say it it doesn't mean, mean it's true necessarily
1: uh so we need kind of a timeline at this point uh for for this challenge
3: Oh, for the case, okay, so we're still waiting on a response to our petition from um, counsel for the Attorney General of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. The time we receive that, then we will contact them and discuss sort of their requirements and timing in terms of how we can get this done, and then we will set a hearing. It's our hope to have this into the courts by the end of the year. I think that that's reasonable based on our assessment, but of course, we do have to work together with opposing counsel to make sure that everybody has the time that they need to put forth the best case and the best evidence possible so we can really get a good decision whether we hope it's in our favor obviously but regardless we want a thoughtful decision from the supreme court of british columbia and then we can take this further as necessary
1: all right we'll keep a close eye on this uh, we'll let people know as well you of course with uh, J car and associates jcarlawyers.com jennifer thanks for joining us here this afternoon appreciate it
3: thank you so much for having me
1: all right take care that is attorney jennifer Terran. Uh, focuses on areas of administrative law constitutional law criminal defense all of that comes into play here uh, this is a woman who never should have been stopped by police in the first place, never should have been asked to provide a breath sample. And everything that has happened since then has just compounded the injustice. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge and you can email me Rob at 770 Talk to you next time.